subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast. When he was last left out of the team, he sat on the bench for the face like a robber's dog. He doesn't look like he's a great team player. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now, great to have you along for the Sunday Papers. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon. I'll start you with the back pages first of all. Picture James Lowe on the front page of the Sunday Times as he sprints in for the opening try for Ireland in the opening few minutes. Fast and loose is the headline there. Ireland leave it late to record biggest victory at Twickenham against 14-man England. For biggest victory against England at Twickenham, coverage is not overly impressed it must be said we'll get to that in a moment and on the left hand side of the Sunday Times front page there uh, Bramovich you won't be surprised to hear features banned from being a director at a club by the Premier League at any time in the future and Hyundai as well the car company suspended their shirt sleeve sponsorship all these sponsors running away from Chelsea I mean they had no idea there was an issue until this week. It's really striking. Sunday Independent then, down to the wire. That picture again of James Lowe sprinting down the touchline Twickenham. Ireland's title hopes stay alive after Twickenham wins, says Brennan Fanning. And Ronaldo is making corner pages of all these front pages as well. Ronaldo's big day. Hat-trick, hero, Nets world, goal, record. This 59th hat-trick. It's just hard to compute. It was his 807th goal, though, as the Sun point out, which is the record uh, Ron the Goat with 59th hat-trick. Cristiano Ronaldo wrecks Spurs and the record books to become football's goal-scoring goat. His 59th hat-trick took him to 807 goals in FIFA-recognised matches. Beneath that, England 15, Ireland 32. Crown Yules is the headline there. Charlie Yules, of course, red-carded in the first two minutes. And a picture of Johnny Sexton. Very happy. Sunday World, they go with the rugby as well. Picture James Lowe being tackled by Max Malins and Johnny Sexton as well. Thumbs up to the crowd. Ireland keep the Six Nations dream alive with Twicken and win. Roy Curtis there. And then Ron tips his hat. Ronaldo blasts back with triple whammy for Spurs. Sunday Mirror. Ronaldo, the main lead there. That'll do, Ron. That'll do. And Tuck and Go. This is Thomas Tuchel. Boss admits Blue's future up in the air as United loom. So Thomas Tuchel saying, I cannot predict the future. Right now my future is with Chelsea, but beyond that, uh, we're not so sure. And then Sexton's title aim. There's Johnny Sexton who's making the point that there is a triple crown to be won, if nothing else, next Saturday at the Aviva Stadium. And then finally, the Mail on Sunday has a picture of Irish celebrations. This time it's James Lowe being uh, jumped upon by Josh van der Fleer and Jameson Gibson Park. The late escape is how it's built here. This game did go to 15 points apiece. I'm sure lots of you were watching yesterday, but Ireland ran clear in the end. And beneath that, Evergreen Coleman can lead us to Euro 24. Stephen Kenny. Uh, responding, I suppose, to Seamus Coleman's performance against Spurs during the week. Very able to say, Dion Fanning, Associate Editor of The Currency, is here in the studio. And Gavin Cooney from The 42 joins us on the line as well. You're both very welcome, Dion. Great to have you in. Hi, Joe. Gav, you can hear us okay there? I can indeed. Might just uh, pick up on that back page for a moment in the mail because we, there are no pieces as such we're going to discuss on Stephen Kenny. Evergreen Coleman can lead us to Euro 24, says Stephen Kenny. Stephen Kenny wants James Coleman to lead the Republic of Ireland to the finals of the 2024 European Championships, writes Philip Quinn. A long-serving defender will be 35 then, but Kenny doesn't see a barrier. I want Seamus playing at the European Championships in Germany. I've told him that, said uh, Kenny. And of the criticism dished out on Monday evening, he said, since Frank Lampard's come in at Everton, Seamus has actually played very, very well until the other night against Spurs, which was just a bad night for the team. I think if Seamus was 28, people would just say he hasn't had a good game. But because he's over 30, people are saying he's finished. It's not accurate. He's been very good. You were at the press conferences during the week. You were one of the few brought behind the Iron Curtain of sorts to mm. watch the tactical presentation. I finally even accepted, you know. That's all what we did. Acceptance is over, really, in the game for ultimately, you know. So we were brought brought in behind the scenes, down the many the kind of labyrinth corridors of the FAI, to this uh, to this video analysis presentation uh, conducted by Stephen Kenny um, in the analysis room. It, it ran through clips. I mean, it was mostly in terms of a clip package. It's what the old RT panel would call good Irish play. He ran through, you know, the tactical setup from the games in 2021. He didn't shirk some of the the worst moments. You know, if you remember that horrendous goal they gave away on a free kick in Andorra, when things really looked like, oh no, 
so we're going to go terribly wrong. He did say that was a shocker. Uh, but I thought it was interesting stuff. I mean, it was different from uh, your typical press conference. I think, uh, look, this is, now this is leavened with a heavy dollop of self-interest. I think it's great when managers are this open about uh, their setup and what they're trying to do because it at least takes away the excuse for any kind of studied ignorance in, in media commentary around Kenny and how he sets up the team and what he's trying to achieve, which I think we've seen in some quarters of the last year. And I also think that certain previous managers have been you know have been guarding tactical setups and what they're trying to do in the pitch like uh, the secrets of Fatima sometimes I think because there isn't a whole lot to what they want to do and hence it might be exposed so there's a level of security there on Kenny's behalf that he's willing to present this because he knows he's doing the work and he's trying to do something slightly more innovative and interesting so all in all I thought it was pretty good yeah I I, I wasn't there I wasn't in the uh inner sanctum and I but I think it's it is a good idea I think it's um it's important to kind of as Gavin says to um for managers to illustrate these things and also I think um to go a bit deeper because there isn't and I think you know you can see it again in the coverage today there and you can see it since the contract announcement there isn't an awful lot really to talk about you can really force kind of headlines out of what what is coming out of the Ireland camp a lot, which is why there was such a big debate over his contract in some in some respects because there wasn't an awful lot else to talk about with Irish football. Um, so to go into something like this is, <coughs> excuse me, is is welcome. Um, I think Gavin might be a bit optimistic if he thinks it would it will uh, will remove anyone's uh, chances of being you know uh, what was your phrase. Uh, Deliberately ignorant. Well, yeah, uh, well, studied ignorance. Studied yeah. ignorance. Yeah, I, I think that's what. That, there's always room. There's always be the potential for that. Um, and uh, if things don't go well for Stephen Kenny, that could still uh, that could still return. I would ask that maybe, um, you know, I think uh, the flip side of, of the studied ignorance is I think we want the journalists who were there not to be still in two years' time talking about things like, you know, well, if you had been in that room listening to Stephen Kenny, you would understand what he's trying to do now. Um, so uh, I think there should be maybe a statute of limitations on how long uh, we can that they can refer to this uh, tactical I briefing. I agree with that wholeheartedly. That's uh, going to make a lot of my pieces a lot shorter now in the future, I have to say. Uh, but, but sorry, just in t- aside from the tactical side of things, there was a kind of a storyline to emerge from it in the sense that Kenny talked about the turning point, you know, because 2020 was such a disaster. Now, obviously, we know there were mitigating factors in terms of COVID cases and injuries and so on. But he talked about getting hammered in a Wembley 3-0 and England playing the three at the back. And he said, look, this will never, ever happen again. So he decided things had to change. And that was the three at the back that was brought in at the beginning of 2021, which I found a kind of an interesting argument against the perception that, you know, Anthony Barry came in at the start of 2021 and all of a sudden Ireland were playing three at the back, a similar setup, Mm. but Barry's playing at Chelsea. So it was almost, it felt to me like Kenny was kind of taking control of that narrative a little bit, that he he was responsible for the change and not the coach who has come in and since departed. And on the motivation for Stephen Kenny doing this, Gav, you were saying there that maybe this was something he'd want to do for some time. So, uh, something like this can obviously be open to the criticism of uh, barefaced, charm offensive, a bit of a stunt, uh, mm. get the journalists on side. To be fair to Kenny, I suspect it was more well-intentioned and it was an effort almost at decency and uh, progressive move in some respects. Yeah. But yeah. Not, not without its PR value as well, I'm sure. I think so. I think just what I mentioned, there is a certain PR value, yeah. even if it's absolutely true as regards through the back and totally. But like, you know, lots of managers do things uh, hidden from view that keep journalists on side, be they, you know, taking them out for dinner, etc. Stephen Kenny doesn't do that. Or if he does, he doesn't invite me, <laughs> which is entirely fair on his part. Um, and he did actually, he gave a presentation to Irish, an Irish supporters group. I think it was at the end of 2020, or maybe at the start of 2021, yeah. that was done on Zoom that he did a similar kind of thing where he went through, you know, passages of good Irish play and got his idea across is how he's trying to play because, you know, a lot of the support for Kenny among the supporter base is bound up in what in how the team are trying to play. So it's Kenny on his part to be uh, to get that across as absolutely clearly and unfiltered as he can. Yeah. Which managers have taken you to dinner? 
some total of zero so far. Well, I think Martin. Well, wait, but Dion, Dion will have better stories on that. Well, no, I, no, I, 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 have I been to? I haven't been to dinner with too many managers. Did but... you and John Delaney go for dinner after your interview in 2012? <laughs> 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 no, uh, we didn't. He just walked by me carrying all the folders he'd brought in to show me what great success Euro 2012 had been. Yeah. Um, uh, but Martin O'Neill used to the FAI arranged dinners for sports editors with Martin O'Neill um, but they didn't arrange them with, with journalists uh, for whatever reason so there was some attempt there mm. to to at a, at a higher level and again it is a, it is a common thing you know in, in England it happens all the time that uh, well it's not dinner but <clears throat> briefings and, and you know things like that do happen and I think the one thing I'd say about Stephen Kenny is if you were to bump into him or to have a, a, a conversation with him somewhere, this is the stuff he'd probably be talking to you about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it is authentic. It is the stuff that he would, if uh, you were having a conversation with him and he was talking to you about the art, like this is the, this is the road he would go down. So yes. it's, not, uh, it's not a PR drive in the sense that it's something uh, artificial or, mm. uh, or superficial. I think it, it's genuine. And again, yeah, I think it, it's definitely something that's worth uh, worth doing. Okay, very good. So the uh, rugby then features on all the front pages. Gav, what pieces did you turn to? What theme grabbed you? Because considering it was a record win at Twickenham, you wouldn't say the papers are effusive with praise for the Irish performance by any means. Mm, what a chaotic and entertaining game. And unfortunately, I had to wait overnight and get the papers this morning to figure out what I should have thought about it. Um, there, there isn't a lot. I mean, it's certainly not showering the Irish team with praise. I think there is a misconception out there that the media are, are blindly uh, supportive of the Irish rugby team. It's been far from the truth for many years now. Uh, Rory O'Connor in the Sunday Indo, just a line in his match report, probably sums it up pretty well. Against an England team that battled courageously with 14 men, Andy Farrell's side put in their worst performance in their last visit here, and yet they came away with a bonus point win, their biggest ever in London a one that keeps their hopes of a triple crown and a title alive. If they're not deeply worried by the way their scrum imploded and their leadership core melted under pressure, then they're deluding themselves. Had Charlie Hughes not got himself sent off in the opening passages, this would have been a very different story. Uh, Peter O'Reilly talks about warning signs, that there was, you know, was slightly um, more uh, more mixed in talking about warning signs and what was broadly a good performance. Um, and the other thing I'm kind of taken from the papers is that the red card, like, I mean, people say the red card early in the game ruins it. I felt it kind of made it. I mean, it brought England, it just brought, brought something kind of more uh, primal out of England. And it was absolutely great and probably helped get the, the referee on it, on their side. I mean, uh, I know Stephen Jones can uh, can divide opinion in Ireland. I mean, I he's generally one of the first rugby writers I reach for on, on a Sunday. He's just a fabulous writer. Um, and he summed up pretty well the impact that the... That the, uh, that the red carrot had uh, on the game, he says, everything changes. The denuded team realise that they have to spill their guts all over the stadium, especially the home stadium with the fans going crackers. The other team have to cope with the idea that there is nothing to gain because they are supposed to win anyway. And with an extra man, it reverberates everywhere. Referees are only human. It is a human frailty to do, to do well by the team you have weakened. And that is per- exactly what Mr. Reynal did, perhaps subconsciously. Um, so, no, it was... Uh, uh, that's probably it I'm kind of yeah. almost as interested in how the English journalists are um, writing about the English team uh, but we'll probably get to that yeah well it's a very confused picture across the board even on England you have Clive Woodward for a second we'll come back to Ireland in a moment but he's talking about how England found themselves in adversity and he said the reason they lost the game is they just hit a wall of fatigue in the last 10 minutes Ireland too good a side not to take advantage of that but he said there were glimpses of a bright future for England and he had been very critical up until now however Stephen Jones he says if you took away England's passion and professionalism there was no sign that they had anything remotely resembling an attack which could have troubled Ireland even if they had the 15 men so even there there's disagreement so to give you a sense of some of the critiques Shane McGrath page 77 mail on Sunday this was a strange kind of glory as the fists were pumped at the final whistle and the commentators let rip with the kind of yahooing best kept for Cheltenham and closing time on St. Patrick's Day, it seemed as if the preceding hour and a half had all the substance of a spilled porter. He says, uh, the fact is, Ireland were, for the great majority of this game, poor and sometimes abject. They just about survived, was his take. Ireland's scrum collapsed, uh, stirring old ghosts of awful afternoons at this ground. 
and uh, pinpointing enormous worries for Andy Farrell about the quality of Ireland's front row cover. Leadership, he says, palpably deficient. At times it looked absent. He said Johnny Sexton's difficulties were disquieting. This as he signed his new contract. Peter Romani's surprise selection. This looked a challenge too far. Uh, Furlong, properly celebrated as a world-class talent, but Ellis Genge haunted him in the scrum. So plenty of negativity there as well. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's interesting looking at it as, a, as an outsider. You know, in- England are being written about in defeat the way uh, some of us now, I, I take Gav's point that it, that's not how Ireland are actually covered, but how some of us would have felt that Ireland are often covered in defeat. Uh, heroic. Heroic. Mm. Um, and if you didn't know the score, if you picked up the papers today, you'd think Ireland had lost. Uh, Just read as if they've blown it. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's interesting. <clears throat> I was struck as well by a quote from Eddie Jones, uh, where he said, we showed great spirit and great tactical discipline. Now, Apart from losing one of your players in, in the first few couple of minutes to a needless sending off, you yeah. show great tactical discipline. <laughs> uh, so, like, how much um, this reflects on on Eddie Jones? And you know, he is he has been talking. He was talking up the kind of battle in the in the in the days before the game. So it does seem to be something that. Um, you know, go, comes back to him in terms of of responsibility for that because uh, it seemed it was it was such a reckless challenge. Um, but then again, the other thing I think about that is how and it, to like you you look at you look at football. It that 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 problem that comes with playing against a, a team that is a man down is something or a player down is something you see in football a lot of the time. Yeah, rugby with the the element of physicality. I guess you expect it to be a more, you know, to have an extra man is going to be something that you your superiority tells is easier to to, to tell yeah. and easier to demonstrate. But I was struck we, in, in the currency. There's a piece by Simon Hick today, and he mentions this stat where from 16 games in the England Premiership where a red card has been handed out, uh, four, 31% of the time the team down to 14 didn't lose the game. Interesting, because Bernard Jackman says, and Ireland were obliterated at the scrum, he says, no scrum, no win normally holds true in rugby. Mm. However, he says 15 versus 14 is an even stronger influencer of the results. Yeah, well, that's so, again, like whether you're dealing, and this is because of how, like, sending off red cards are becoming more common as teams still adapt to, you know, the correct, like, harsh, you know, interpretation of of the tackle. Don't smash your opponent in the head. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how long it's taken them. (laughs) To adapt <clears throat> that rule, but yeah. but again, that that idea then so clearly, the amount of work that teams are doing for for when they have fourteen men is uh, is, improving. is is improving yeah. because of this, um, and I think that's one of the things that Ireland had to face up with. Again, they also will be working on playing with with an extra with an with an extra player, yeah. and how you actually combat that. But so I think there there are, there's a lot of interesting things about it, but ultimately. It is. It is again as an outsider. It is fascinating to look at Ireland being hammered in in a, in a lot of quarters for how they play in a win a, win at Twickenham. Yeah, it's true. Nigel Owens is a piece again. Referees have such an effect on rugby matches that referees get columns here. I know in football it happens a little bit, but it's it's ne- never quite as central as uh, rugby. So Owens addresses two points. We'll come to the red card in a moment and James Ryan in a moment, but even just takes the scrum, which was the defining aspect of this game aside from the red card. And Nigel Owens, the former referee, is writing here in the Telegraph. It's also in the Sunday Independent. He's saying people are talking about six penalties against Ireland in the scrum. Maybe there should have been a yellow card. He said that's a very valid point. However, and this is where the referee on the day can have such an effect on things. He said he thought England were only correctly awarded three or four of those penalties. He thought two or three of them should have gone the way of Ireland. So Ireland gave away six penalties in the scrum. Owen says it should have been 4-2, maybe even 3-3. Now it's 3-3, Ireland go from being quote-unquote obliterated at the scrum and crisis over strength and depth to, well, they held their own. Yeah. So that's an amazing thing that if Nigel Owens was refereeing that game, it's not six penalties against, it's potentially 3-3, which is extraordinary. I don't think in many other sports the referee plays such a central and defining role. So, I mean, what, well, no, I what do you make in, sense of that? Yeah, in the interpretation of, of the narrative as well, as you say, like, because the scrum is the thing that's identified across all the papers as 
uh, a failing for Ireland. And again, I'd ask you, who knows a lot more about this than me, is that is that that failing because of the fa- the penalties that went against Ireland? Or are, are people identifying other problems beyond that? A few other problems for sure. And there were times when Ireland were going backwards. But you know yourself, even backs with 100 test matches watch a scrum Ooh. watch the referee blow the whistle and if you were to press pause and say which way is the penalty going <laughs> they wouldn't put their mortgage on it yeah. or why so yeah. it, is, it does seem to be its own curious entity in there and the fact that Nigel Owens a brilliant referee disagrees with another I'm presuming brilliant referee although he is criticised in a couple of the papers today just uh, says it all you know I don't think you would get that kind of disagreement in many other papers uh, let's talk about this uh, red card then because that's also, also features in Nigel Owen's piece and you know his essential point here is that referees have to stay strong on this and World Rugby have asked them to send out a clear message that it won't be tolerated and he's saying he's seen a few comments where maybe a 20 minute orange card would be a better solution because it doesn't ruin the game quote unquote ruin the game and he's saying well you need a stronger deterrent so he wants to stick with the red card for these kind of tackles like Neil Francis puts it in very stark terms and on the one hand unless you're a neurologist who has seen James Ryan's files you can't really say this and yet obviously there is a concern over James Ryan David Walsh reports that last year he suffered four concussions in 2021 now on the very next page beside him Peter O'Reilly says it's two concussions suffered in 2021 I'm not exactly sure which it is Uh, Neil Francis' piece, for instance, uh, it opens with the win and how he says it was a bittersweet moment because yesterday marked the end of two great careers. It's a matter of regret that James Ryan left the fray early, but it marked a tipping point in terms of where it's no longer safe to let this great athlete play rugby at any level anymore. I do not think that Charlie Eels is a dirty player, but that contact was horrific. And in order to have this type of tackle contact taken out of the game, there'll have to be huge suspensions. And I'm talking six months to a year, no mitigation or account of a player's previous history. These sort of collisions have to disappear. And the only way for that to happen is really painful suspensions. You will be surprised how quickly players begin to tackle much lower. Uh, these tackles are a blight on the game. Yeah, um, I, I don't think you, again, could disagree with that point, because if they're still happening um, and... Uh, there are two separate things in in some degrees, in some respects, I suppose. You know, James the James Ryan story and the tackle. Yeah. Uh, but they come together in 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 this and in many other cases. So they're, they're they are obviously linked as well. But you have to reach a point where the tackles it is in their it is in players' heads that this is this is not just going to co- cost their team something in a game. Um, but there are going to be consequences in terms of suspensions, as Neil Francis says, and that clearly still isn't happening because you you are seeing the tackles. Whether, um, as we touched on earlier, it's because it you know, and a team is clearly fired up in these moments. And again, it also points to the huge problem that rugby has in making itself fa- safer. In that, as a game, entire is defined so much by physicality. Yes. Um, Eddie Jones in the build-up that was his big line Ireland have not faced a game this physical since they played South Africa in 2017 and you're conditioned and as a rugby player and again I am you know as a rugby player that demonstration of your of your of your willingness to be physical is how you define yourself as a a warrior if you like in these in these situations and how you feel the absence of that identifies you as somebody who in some way isn't up for it. Yeah. Like that is the thing. That is that is the whole thing that concussion in rugby and the whole broader argument is trying to wrestle with. How you actually in some ways tell the players that they are still and identify the players as warriors because it is a game of, of physicality yeah. and how you do that whilst telling them well actually you you need to um, you need to temper that with some restraint yes. because you know there are they are actually uh, now I don't want to go down the road of you know you take something from a player's game but but I think anticipating consequences and physical courage are sometimes very hard to actually align because physical courage uh, uh, I can't remember what writer wrote it but he said anyone uh, anyone of high intelligence is a physical coward. 
Um, and uh, I think there is there is an element there of, you know, you have to be prepared to be to ignore the consequences of what you're doing if you are actually being physically brave, especially in a game like rugby. So to, to change that is, 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 takes time because it is it is it is conditioned, but it has to happen. Yeah. And I think it has to happen when you look at somebody like James, when you look at you again, like I, I ask myself this all like a lot about how is rugby going to evolve and survive because um, it, are, are parents happy for their kids to play rugby? Knowing, knowing, knowing what they know about how the players have have grow, like you know, it is, you know, we know what looking like. You know, you look at those players and you look at the, the, the sheer weight coming at you when you're when you're hit. Mm. Is that something that you want uh, for your 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 kids? And you know, in, in Irish terms, let's be blunt about it. Uh, Irish players for 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 for, a hu- for in a huge many instances are coming from a background. Where they have, where the, you know, their parents, I say, well, you know, no, I don't want you to be a professional rugby player. You're going to study law. Or you're going to be a yeah. doctor because they're all coming from backgrounds where uh, this is, you know, th- this is just a reality of it. It's it's something that, um, and I wonder if it, how it sustains itself. That is not, you know, that is like any, like this is something that all sports have to address. But it is something that I I wonder about in terms of, of rugby and actually. Like the consequences of, of how yeah, it is. no, and look, there's a colossal legal action in the offing yeah. amongst players in the first decade of this century. I suppose Gav rugby is at this point whereby early 2000s, this legal case will be decided very soon, I would think, and the practices of say that decade, that first real decade of professionalism, it turned professional in '95, but post 2000, where really the players reached colossal sizes. The training practices then were questionable in terms of the amount of contact which went on, uh, players being concussed and playing on, no HIA for a long time. So rugby, in terms of training practices, in terms of on-field practices, has developed uh, massively, say, over the last 10 years, the most recent 10 years. And what it's trying to do now is to further reduce the number of hits to the head because certain aspects of rugby, i.e., any kind of tackle risks the possibility of a head banging off a knee or banging off a hip and a concussive blow. And equally, even just tackles which don't catch our eye as being particularly bad can have a whiplash effect, which you do that a couple of thousand times. With certain players, it's going to have a cumulative effect. And, and they, those moments seem impossible to divorce from the sport. They're just too intrinsic to how the sport is played. Mm. So what rugby is trying to do at the moment is, well... We need to get rid of the James Ryan, Charlie Yules ones for starters. I mean, if we're going to have all the other ones that are very hard to extract from the sport, we can't have the extra ones like we saw yesterday. And even then, even then, the terrible thing for the sport is there is a degree of real-time experiment here. You know, the, the previous generation we're talked about is the guinea pig generation. There is still going to be a degree of that. Like there's a correction happening, a, a calibration happening, and it might only be in another 15, 20 years before we find out if the current players were protected enough. And Mm. that's the precarious space that the sport finds itself in. That's why incidents like yesterday register with people because there's an acceptance that there's already a lot of punishment happening. And so these needless hits to the head, which which aren't intrinsic to the game. Like rugby players used to tackle around the hips. They are, this is a, like a rugby league defensive coach. Tackle high, take the ball. These, you know, these things are so needless. And when there's already so much punishment in the game, the fact that these high hits are refusing to go away despite red card after red card over the last two years uh, is, is hard to fathom, actually. I don't know what defensive coaches are teaching at the moment. James Ryan's six foot six. There's no mm. need to hit his head. Even if you're the size of Charlie, you, you can just duck a touch. Mm, yeah, I mean, Ferrano's point is I agree with him in principle that these should be punished with, what, six-month bans, a year bans. And for stuff like Charlie Ewells and James Ryan, that's an open and shut case. Like, I mean, James Ryan, six foot seven, he's standing upright. He's to be caught on his face. Charlie Ewells is very, very high. The problem is, if you watch rugby, these uh, these there's incidents like this in almost every game you watch, you know? And there seems to be, watching often enough, you'll find enough mitigation, if not to reduce the red card penalty on the field, but uh, to reduce the suspension um, by the sighting commissioner or on appeal. But for as long as rugby is played, the uh, the risk of brain injury cannot be 
eliminated. It's a very hackneyed phrase, but like the sport's greatest strength is its greatest weakness. Like people turn up, pay their tickets, pay their television subscriptions to watch the physicality. Yeah, but the, said physicality is an is an existential risk to the game. And people who bemoan, I mean, you can make. You, I mean, World Rugby are beginning to make changes in terms of dishing out red cards more often. I think the orange card is a ludicrous. Um, compromise, which is done in the not in the best interests of the sport and its players, but in the best interest of those selling broadcast rights to the competitions that are being played. And the people who moan that a red card in the first minute of a game ruins the game, it might ruin the game, but it might protect the sport. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's uh, that's that is the re- the reality of it. That there that there is. Uh, whatever you know, the condition, whatever, however the players have been conditioned, there is also just that atavistic urge in rugby crowds that you know the bigger the the bigger the hits, uh, the more they respond. And again, how you deal with that as a player in a situation like Twickenham in the early minutes when you're, you're you know everything is about, as we said, demonstrating that uh, with the crowd urging. You know, urging, desperate for physicality of some some description. They're not looking, they're not looking for you know anything else. That's what the, that's what they're there for. And you can see it if you, you know, on the odd occasion I've been to a rugby game, you're really struck by uh, the the roar when these when the, when when the hits are made. Like it is, you know, it isn't. It is like this. A part of it is shock, and part of it is kind of. Being appalled, but it's all you know. It, it's something a bit more primitive than that too. So it is, as Gav said, it's like hardwired into the into the game, and yet then you read and like Brendan Fanning has, and it's it's, it's very plaintive. Like ben, Brendan Fanning's paragraph on on Ryan today is, you know, he just says its downside was the early departure of James Ryan, yet another concussion for a fine player in a career blighted by head problems. When he was sitting on the Twickenham turf, probably a full minute after getting dunted by a high head-to-head collision with Charlie Yules in the first 60 seconds of the game, Ryan looked at the medic with an expression that was profoundly sad. It was as if the gravity of the situation was gradually making itself plain to him. If you had captioned this picture, then then this would be as good as any. It's happened again, hasn't it? Mm, There was that expression on his face. We wish him well. Andy Farrell did say he was celebrating with the team in the dressing room and felt fine afterwards, so we do wish him well. Let's move on to extraordinary story this week, Chelsea. Ollie Holt sharpens his pen and let's rip. So Chelsea play Newcastle today. Perfect timing for this type of encounter. Ollie Holt says, make sure you've eaten your uh, Sunday lunch well before you switch it on, otherwise you may struggle to keep it down. He says that Chelsea versus Newcastle is the Premier League's game of shame. Somehow I don't think Sky Sports will lead with that as the theme, (laughs) but it's catchy. Uh, it's a prospect that turns the stomach it's a meeting that embarrasses our national sport and the people who run it they've allowed it to become a match distorted by horrors Premier League allowed Roman Abramovich described by the government as a pro-Kremlin oligarch who had a close relationship for decades with Putin to hide in plain sight at the pinnacle of English football since 2003 they did nothing to restrict his role in our national sport even when his ally sent Russian tanks rolling into Ukraine last month and that actually is worth restating here the Premier League have done nothing here these were UK sanctions. Premier League didn't act. I think they've acted laterally now to say he can't be a director of a football club. But we're talking here on the 13th of March that the Premier League have taken action. So you wonder if, Ukraine, if uh, the UK government hadn't imposed sanctions, where we would be. Uh, Ali Hulk goes on to say, Premier League also waved through the Saudi Arabian state takeover in Newcastle last October, knowing that the Saudis were involved in a long and destructive war with Yemen that is said to have caused 233,000 deaths. More than 10,000 children are estimated to have been killed or wounded as a direct result of the fighting. And then here's the key point. That war has not garnered the same attention as the war in Ukraine, perhaps because it's backed by British weapons and because Boris Johnson's planning a trip to Riyadh this week to plead for more Saudi oil. We did sit up and take notice when Saudis murdered the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in their consulate in Istanbul in October 2018 and cut up his body with a bone saw. The Premier League did not see a red flag there, though, apparently. And of Amanda Staveley, who had sympathised with Abramovich during the week, she said she didn't think it was particularly fair that he had to sell Chelsea. He says, uh, we didn't learn how fair she thought it was that Khashoggi was cut up with a bone saw, nor did we learn how fair she thought it was homosexuality remains illegal 
in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Newcastle in particular will not relish today's collision and the harsh spotlight it will cast on them and on his piece uh, goes. Ultimately, he feels that the general ownership situation in the Premier League should hasten the appointment of an independent regulator. That's about the best solution he can see at the moment. So that's just one of several pieces addressing the Chelsea situation. But as opposed to getting into the nitty-gritty of Chelsea, Dion, Oli Holt takes a a broader look at the ownership situation in the Premier League, which has really transformed in the last 15 years. It has, and it's a a point that... uh Jonathan Wilson makes in in his piece in the in the Observer and in the Sunday Independent today as well, um, where English football goes. I I I I think they probably uh, are putting a bit too much faith in the idea of an, an independent regulator. I think that's um, uh, like. I, I, independent regulator wined and dined by Newcastle directors. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> you know we we not know since, we, not had, since, we had it, not since Gav Cooney will. Uh, <laughs> we had an independent regulator. <laughs> we, we had an independent regulator during the financial crisis uh, yeah. in, in Ireland too. I think, and we know what uh, that they are only they are only as effective as um, the powers that they're they're able to take. And you know the, the thing about all of this. Like you know, you you go back to uh, you you go back to the Newcastle takeover and the legally binding guarantees that Newcastle gave the Premier League that the club wouldn't be controlled by Saudi Arabia. Like, what does that mean? Like, yeah. legally binding guarantees. What, what does what does that mean? Let's see what they are. And really, because like it doesn't, it, it, it it's a nonsense. Like, it is a nonsense to to claim that now. How you define being defined being being controlled by Saudi Arabia is where is 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 the kind of game, if you it's, like. Well, it's suitably vague. That's where yeah. they, that's where they get it over the line. Yeah. But it, it it doesn't. It, it's a uh, it's it's a sigh of relief. Oh, you've provided the legally binding guarantee. Gets us off the hook. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and um, now, Roman Abramovich. Uh, Saudi Arabia. One of the one of the one of the stories of of this too is, you know, the deep pockets that they have. How Premier League clubs, and this is the one thing I would say about this: that the Premier League was not an outlier, like in terms of of uh, opening doors to the money of of Russian oligarchs. Like London was 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 every 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 door was open. You know, if you read Putin's people, you'll you'll see that. You know, PR companies charging oligarchs a hundred grand a month for you know uh, reputational yeah. advice. The legal, on times. the legal fee, the legal fees that that, that all these companies got to info, you know to protect the reputation of 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 these people. And again, I you know if if they want something badly enough, if they want to own a football club badly enough, they they will have uh, they will have the legal means. To argue their case, um, and and as we know, in lots of instances uh, in Ireland and England, you know, a legally uh, a well argued legal legal case often just comes down to how deep your pockets are. Because part of me wonders if football is being harshly treated in this respect a touch, because it is just a reflection of what happened over the last twenty years. So Abramovich and Chelsea, for that read, London and Russian money, Saudi Arabia. That coalition is buying weapons off the UK. It's buying weapons off the US government. So, I mean, why are we to expect football to stand up more than English society, for instance? Gav is a kind of question I have. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very fair point. I think the reason is that um, I think football just provides a more visceral window, a more obvious window into all this. Like, you know, when when you look at the um, the extent to which Russian money has pervaded London, it's very difficult to know who owns this shell company behind the purchase of this building. But you can very viscerally see Chelsea fans singing Roman Abramovich's name um, during, I suppose, minutes of applause for the victims of the war in Ukraine last week, for instance. Um, and maybe football is held to a higher moral standard because... It is, in theory, it should be, in theory, held to a higher moral standard because the game, for all uh, the defects of its business, is still the best way of you know, bringing people together of colour and creed, etc., and of some slightly egalitarian 
um, egalitarian setup. Uh, I'm not expressing myself very well there, but just on Jonathan Wilson's piece, I mean, it's so well written, it's so strong, um, but it's kind of bleak. I mean, just listen to the, just I'll read out the last bit. Yeah. Um, the absurdity of modern football. The Premier League is the most popular league in the world. No league has generated so much income. More people watch football in England than ever before. Yet throughout the pyramid, clubs are struggling. Are struggling. Fans are begging for sugar daddies. That is the consequence of the era the Abramovich takeover inaugurated. Decoupling a club's capacity to invest from the revenues it can raise itself. And if we were starting again, who would own the clubs? It's easy to talk about fan ownership and 50 plus one and golden shares, but could modern fans be trusted not to roll over for the first billionaire to come promising to end what is preposterously described as their suffering, those unconscionable seasons of bobbing along in mid-table? Modern football is often beautiful, beautiful, but structurally and morally, the game is rotten. If we were starting again, it might be a very good thing. And the reason that football is held to a higher account is because it matters and it's important to people. The more uh, specific question, of course, is what happens to Chelsea? So the ownership situation will rumble on. As for Chelsea in the short term, nobody really knows, is my reading of all the pieces, because nobody has seen anything like this. So I've seen doomsday scenarios painted and I've seen, well, look, this will be sold pretty quickly and things will get back to working order very quickly as well. Like Paul Rowan, Duncan Castles trying to get into Chelsea. They really say, look, the writing's been on the wall since... Abramovich's UK work visa wasn't renewed in the aftermath of the Salisbury attack in 2018. And that was why Abramovich postponed his one billion redevelopment of Stamford Bridge, which would have been completed by now if it had gone ahead as planned and talks about how Stamford Bridge, you know, the dress rooms increasingly being complained about as cramped and they had to annex some of the media room to make the dress rooms bigger. That's why Abramovich's three billion evaluation of the club is such nonsense they write like they go on to say you know Peter Kenyon back in 2011 said the club would become self-financing and here we are a decade on and it really isn't the club's monthly wage bill is 28 million sterling which we've all had to double check several times but I guess 28 million sterling is probably about right so what do you think happens to Chelsea here in the next six months well you see that's that's that's, uh, I, I, that's an interesting point um, I think I think one of the things when you talk about the that Peter Kenyon line, which did jump out, and I think I remember him saying that at the time. Um, this is what financial fair play... Like, financial fair play has been spun as an attack by the traditional clubs uh, on, you know, the Ar- Aravists of, of football, yes. the people who are trying to kind of break down the door. Keeps the status quo. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> there was, in its, in, its, in, its, in its best reading of it, an also attempt to stop this happening to stop the situation where when you lose your benefactor, everything is up in the air. Because if they were self-sufficient in in 2011, then you wouldn't be looking at a scenario where people are saying, who's going to pay the £28 million a month wage bill? Um, I, would, I would say that... I would, to a degree, with, with Chelsea, or I would say tough. Like, you have your £28 million mm. a, wa- a month wage bill because of Roman Abramovich. So when he is removed from the equation, if it's administration, none of these things, like Chelsea will exist. Chelsea will exist, like, you know, uh, like, I, 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 like I've, it's, I went to, first went to a game at Chelsea in 19, God, 1990, uh, when Spurs beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in the old, in, you know, in, in a drafty old stadium that, you know, the, the wind howled through and Chelsea had year you know, Chelsea were, Chelsea will exist with their history. Sam Wallace mentions this in his piece in the Telegraph today as well. They do have a history. It just, they won't exist the way they've existed for the last 20 years. Perhaps they will if the, if a billionaire who buys them, um, wants to do what Abramovich does, but they're more, more likely to want to do what, uh, Liverpool have done that kind of ownership, which may get them into the with, with smart recruitment at all levels, it may get them to where they are today. But it, it's it's more of a gamble. Yeah. But they will exist. So like there isn't like you mentioned the doomsday scenario. I saw like <laughs> I think um, at the moment there are no doomsday scenarios involving uh, Chelsea and Stamford Bridge. Like the, I saw a tweet the other day from a football journalist talking about the doomsday scenario, and it was you know no program sales on Sunday. And I well, you know, when nuclear plant, when there are firefights at nuclear plants in, in, in Ukraine, I'm not sure that qualifies as a doomsday scenario. 
Like, I think suck it up. Yeah. Um, and, also, sorry, Gav. So I, sorry, Dion, to go crazy. I kind of don't understand why Chelsea have been granted this special sporting license to continue. I mean, if they took the money, they should, you know, reap the consequences of it. And at least, I mean, it's because they're an, not an, an entity the, of some kind of cultural well, it comes, community. It comes, well, they're, they're an entity of cultural importance in a wealthy London suburb. It comes like back to why it comes back to why sport is diff- Why sport is a special case in some ways, because, and it comes back to why there is an attraction to owning to owning yeah. football clubs. Because mm. you know there are other elements of Roma Abramovich's businesses. Which aren't getting these these licenses, yes. Um, but Chelsea are getting it because the idea of of a football club grinding to a halt is seen as as as, as wrong, and that ex- and that is why they they do matter, and that is why. Um, now, the one thing I say, businesses uh, businesses all over the world are, are are either being sanctioned or exiting Russia, so it is not just football being treated differently. Um, but the fact that you do get this. This this loyalty you get Chelsea fans chanting Roman Abramovich's name like you know Newcastle supporters uh, defending the actions of Saudi Arabia are asking why they have to account for it which is fair enough and saying well, well look at the other nobody like I think whatever uh, other investments that the Saudi Arabian uh, wealth fund has and uh, nobody you know, they invest in coffee companies I won't say the I, Pretty sure I know. I can remember which one it is. I won't say it just yeah. in case. They're but, an Uber, aren't they? Yeah, they're in, yeah. But nobody, nobody, um, nobody go. Nobody feels that their their life has been uh, that they're they're spiritually enriched by getting a cup of coffee in one yeah. one place over another place. Yeah. Nobody mm-hmm. is uh, screaming about you know their loyalty to one coffee company. You know, you don't have loads of people in the mentions. No, of, true. Of, a, of a coffee company, so it does matter to people in a different way. Um, and that's why it is important, and that's why the you know again, uh, even as uh, even as the thing comes to an end, it still is getting as Gav's you know is still getting these this dispensation. Yeah, and I would say just to go back on one thing on the Jonathan Wilson piece and fan ownership, and I think it's a very good point. Fan ownership is favoured by an awful lot of people, except fans. You know, there now there will be minorities at lots of clubs, and I know Chelsea supporters who would welcome a kind of return to something that wasn't the Roman Abramovich era in some ways. But again, is is that just a little bit of nostalgia? Mm. The way you know, you will have Manchester City fans who will kind of think, I actually prefer. You know, I, I enjoyed there was more enjoyable before we became uh, a proxy front in a kind of you know in in a. In a geopolitical war, yeah. and there will so there are, will be fans, but there will be an awful lot of fans who want what the owners give them. And like you go back, Newcastle are a great example of it. If Mike Ashley had uh, put money into the club, Newcastle United fans would have been would have been online defending the working practices of Sports Direct. They would have been arguing all day long that whatever committee, House of Commons committees and investigations said about these places, I think in one house it was described as a Victorian, like a, like a Victorian workhouse, they would be saying this is wrong. They would have been defending him because he put money into the club. I noticed yesterday, or on Friday, that FSG Out was trending. In the middle of all this, I saw on Twitter, FSG Out is trending. I was like, what have, what have they done now? How have they joined this? Uh, and it turned, you know, then it turned out that the, you know, the news had broken that uh, Mosala had turned down the contract offer. So give them the money that they want, and they'll su- and they'll support whatever you do. Premier League ownership has been very interesting over the last twenty years. Where it goes now, I don't know. It seems you're either going to get uh, dodgy billionaire state-funded sports washing effort and lots of money spent. Or you're going to get rich American leverage buyout running the thing like a business. They're your main options right now. Roy Smith was making this point really well uh, on the New York Times website either Friday or yesterday. Like, the Premier League is now so inflated. The money in it is is now so inflated. It's running out of room to grow. Where on earth are they going to get enough money to compete? And this is like... The Abramovich here, and Roy Smith is making this point that, the, like Abramovich's arrival in English football is the watershed. Like that is the biggest, that is the biggest moment in the sports modern history because it created this kind of mad inflationary spiral, which drove 
clubs into the hands of nation states or into the hands of charlatans and cowboys who, were, who, who claimed that we could compete. I mean, I, I remember, you know, venerable old David Moore at, at Liverpool told Jamie Carragher when uh, they were competing with Chelsea, it's not enough to be a millionaire anymore. You have to be a billionaire. And they ended up in the hand of two Americans who had very little money and one of whom described running Liverpool is like running Weetabix, which I remember led to a memorable line on a, a Liverpool fan podcast I listened to. Uh, well, what was he doing? Like dowsing Rafa Benitez in milk. Like, I mean, what was this man doing? Uh, and it, and they, uh, this, it, this massive inflationary spiral has now led to envious glances from the likes of Barcelona, Madrid, Juventus. And now they want to break away from UEFA to form their Super League to compete. When you're looking at like, it's gonna, it could conceivably end up breaking the entire pyramid structure that has run European football forever, for decades. Hmm. And in that pyramid football, that pyramid of football at UEFA, um, there is a certain trickle-down effect of money to Ireland. Say, you know, I mean, that that's what funds in, like noble grassroots uh, programs and facilities here in Ireland and and further in Europe. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think that. Rory's line in that piece is like the conceit of the conceit of um, perpetual growth or something like that, and like, yeah, they're they're running out of places to go. To be honest, this is Cheltenham week. Previews are plenty across the papers. One story which just caught my eye: page twenty-one of the Sunday Times, and it's Brooks Scott here, the journalist. Racing can't afford a whip controversy. Whip is in what they whip the horses with. And so he opens his piece by saying there's a toxic word that racing would like to avoid next week. It's the whip. And he says, no matter that the actual implement itself is a 68 centimetre, 160 gram piece of flexible polymer lined with padded foam and with less impact, but a lot more noise than a rolled up newspaper. The closing image is uh, still that of a straining animal being twacked by a human on top. And he says, for a sport whose place in the public's affections has been sorely compromised in the last year by the ugliness of the Robbie Dunn, Briony Frost bullying case and the grotesque dead horse photo of Gordon Elliott, he'll be back larger than life next week. A whip controversy is something racing cannot avoid. And he goes through the situation with the whip at the moment. So basically, at the moment, the number of permitted hits at the close of a race is seven on the flat, eight over jumps. He says they're an arbitrary mark which does not take in the timing and power of the uh, strikes or the narrow jockey-only deterrent penalty of the deterrent of the penalty. So, like, if you're uh, if the whip rule is broken, the result very much stands. It's the jockey who maybe gets a punishment. And he says it's you know d- disqualification is twi- tricky because you might have the first two riders in the Grand National using the whip, and then the distant third horse gets the uh, win, which wouldn't be satisfactory. And he says, uh, my reluctance is, be- is uh, because used properly, the whip should be a conductor's baton, not a toxic word. And he does talk, of, he gives various examples of how the whip is used in almost in uh, symmetry with the horse. And it's, it's, uh, it's more a fulfillment than punishment is the way he puts it. So, I, look, I don't know, I don't have strong opinions on the whip. I know the optics of the whip look dreadful. I don't, I, I've never held one and he says you know it's like a a newspaper and and has less impact uh, than that Um, but what just jumped out to me more than anything Gavin is most sports i.e. a football world cup an all-Ireland final whatever you care to mention the the marquee events they view these as opportunities to showcase their sport to the masses and maybe attract new fans whereas it does seem as if horse racing at the moment is almost acutely aware that it is in a real fight for the public's affections right now and Mm, it it, it views things like the Grand National almost, oh god uh, how many horses may potentially die here or things like Cheltenham, we've had all these other controversies, will there be a whip controversy and he doesn't even mention the work, you know, Paul Kimmage has done the last number of weeks and and the the spectre of doping which now hangs over the sport it's it's just quite striking that this piece on the eve of Cheltenham is not about excitement, it's like Will there be a whip controversy now on top of everything? Yeah, I have precisely zero interest in the Channel Festival, I have to say, so I haven't read a whole lot of the coverage in the in the papers around it this morning. But you flagged this, Joe, and it was very interesting that you did because the word the word just the word I scribbled above it is insecurity. Like this is a sport so concerned of how they're being perceived now. And you you've got it absolutely spot on. This is you know, this is a major event, this is another thing just to get through. Like the third word in this 
piece by Burrow Scott is toxic. There's the toxic word the racing would like to avoid next week. It's the whip. And it's just the uh, the accumulated impact of all these crises and scandals and controversies. And it's a sport, it's a sport that's so established and so popular in Britain and Ireland, yet evidently feels the ground uh, beneath its feet shifting, which is... Uh, which is a story I can certainly, it would certainly interest me if the if the rest of the Cheltenham Festival would not. Mm. Yeah, I think it is interesting because it, again, it, as you say, like most of the time, this goes on. Uh, a racing takes place as you know, it's for the uh, the committed and the aficionados. Yeah, he's not worried about the use of the whip in the three or five Utoxeter on Tuesday. No, because that's not when the general public are watching it, and I think it, it does. Like, there's a line in it where you know he said. Uh, you know, erring for the rules would not be seen as comfort. Would, would be is an actual sorry for one. No veter- veterinary opinion will say that the current pro cush whip designed is an actual threat to a horse's welfare. It would be vain. It would be vain for racing insiders to imagine any erring from the rules would not be seen as confirmation of the callous out of touch attitude suggested by the front frost Dunn and Elliot cases. Now, that out of touch attitude is what clearly concerns them in terms of. You know, there is a world that is changing and changing all the time. Um, <clears throat> in term, you know, there there is uh, in terms of how it views like animals. If you like, you yeah. know, that is look look at the re- response to Kurt Zuma. You know, that tells you where public opinion is. No, there's never been any time when that would have been considered acceptable. But we are all like, you know, there's there's lots of stuff, and this idea of racing as sport and horses as being instruments uh, in, 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 in the pursuit of sporting success is something that is probably has, has, a, has a limited shelf life um, for many people. That's what I think they're aware of. Sensibilities change. Look at uh, Graeme Soonis during the Zoom yeah. thing. You know, is vegan for the last three years. Yeah. If you'd said to Graeme Soonis 20 years ago, would you consider giving up meat because of cruelty to animals? I don't think it would have been on his radar, but sensibilities do change. Like, uh, what we tolerate in a rugby field, and mm. uh, I do, I, I think racing is sensing that. Geez, look where the greyhound industry is. Yeah, we don't want to be next there on the block in terms of animal welfare issues. No, and as you, and that that is the problem. They can they can survive at fifty weeks of the year, forty eight weeks of the year, when there aren't the festivals that everyone pays attention to, which are what Cheltenham, Grand National, Grand National, yeah. and that's about it. Pretty uh, much, yeah. Um, so it's almost like let's get through this. Yeah. It is, it is. It is fascinating. It's, it, and again, I've, I don't pay much attention to Cheltenham, but that is. It is a really interesting aspect of of what's happening. Gav, you picked out Toto Wolf. The whole yeah, world is Toto watching Wolf. season four of Try to Survive, I presume. Uh, this uh, David Walsh interviewing Toto Wolf, who is. If people aren't watching uh, Formula One at all, and I think increasingly most are, uh, Mercedes. I didn't realize he was a stakeholder. By the way, this guy's a business genius. He was like a venture capital company he set up in his uh, 20s and they invested in different internet companies they thought would make it big in return he was given a shareholding in all these companies and uh, lo and behold he becomes a very very wealthy man and now he has a 30% share in the Mercedes company and they were just so damn impressed with him they said become a principal become the team principal because they got him in to analyse where things were going wrong and they liked uh, what he was about but he is um, tall good looking muscular charismatic uh, alpha male type and uh, quite interesting towards the end he talks about his uh, mental health I've been going to a psychiatrist since 2004 I've had more than 500 hours of therapy getting help as a way of overcoming my problems what uh, do his dark times look like he's asked without going into too much detail feeling depressed feeling inadequate everything depends on how you perceive yourself high profile people who seem to have everything but are struggling we have an obligation to say we're getting help and it's okay to get help so uh you uh, like this, Gav? Yeah, this interview could be twice as long and I think I would have still enjoyed it. Uh, Total Wolf is effectively the, the acceptable face of corporate consulting. He's, uh, <laughs> and he's, such, he's such an alpha. So oh the, my the, God, the so alpha, it's frightening, yeah. Amazing, it's like the, such a great opening scene uh, to this by David Walsh. Um, it's, a, it's a lecture uh, given at Harvard Business School. Um, uh, the question posed by the lecturer, how did Total Wolf become the dominant team principal in Formula One? So then the, the, the audience uh, back forth, uh, back and forth their, their opinions. It's because uh, he's helped bridge the gap between the engineers and the team. It's because he owns a 30% stake in the team. He's allowed, that gives him a chance to take more risks. 
um, he's a good people person. He's got, uh, you know, he's, he's got high standards. And then she writes it all up on the board. And then striding out of the background comes six foot two Toto Wolf. Uh, and where it's written on the blackboard that he's uh, they've won seven world championships, he crosses it out and puts an eight, given that Lewis Hamilton was <laughs> effectively ridden rock solid in Abu Dhabi uh, last year. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, <laughs> oh, you should say he uh, he does put his uh, when he's asked for uh, what's made him so great after putting eight on the blackboard. He says humility uh, with uh, what David Walsh describes as full earnestness. Um, very interesting insight into his origin story. Um, you know, he, was, he was expelled from school briefly because his his family couldn't pay the fees. His father had brain cancer and was unable to work. His grandparents ultimately stumped up the money, and now he has a charitable foundation which uh, ensures that kids in his similar situation can pay. Um, yeah, just just really interesting. And uh, in terms of just de- in terms of the sport itself and dealing with the the egos uh, in a t- like the, the most interesting thing about Formula One is this idea that it's a team sport when it's really an individual sport. Uh, and in 2016. Hamilton and Nico Rosberg were going for the uh, were going for the world championship, and they collided with each other on the last lap of the Austrian Grand Prix. Uh, so Toto reacted by bringing hauling the two drivers in front of the hundreds and thousands of engineers uh, and uh, hundreds, comma, hundreds and thousands. That's not hundreds of thousands uh, of engineers and uh, a backroom staff, and said, "Look, look at everybody here in the room. Imagine everybody back at home and their families, and realize how you're making us look." The next time when you want to drive each other off the road, you think about all the faces here and then you will think twice about doing that again. Yes, you shame them. Look at these engineers. Your, your bickering is costing them uh, points and money and everything else. And it, it seems he mm-hmm. said, uh, by well, this is his telling of the story. But uh, considering his alpha status, he said to the two drivers that he'd take them out of the car if they squabbled again. He said, I said, don't challenge me. You don't know what I'm capable of, which was a chilling threat, <laughs> I thought, to the two lads. So that's Toto Wolff. He is uh, did that the gra- closest thing Formula, Formula One will ever have to Rainier Wolfcastle, I think. Did, did that grab you, Dion? Are you, where are you on the Formula One spectrum? I'm, I'm, I'm not on the spectrum. All right, okay. I'm sorry, so, I so haven't watched... Uh, Drive to Survive season one, two, three or four. Not much any of the Did series. you read that then and say, this is doing very little for me? Yeah, I had that thing which I call when I'm reading a piece that somehow, whether actually literally or figuratively, I start reading something and next thing you know, I've actually started making a cheese sandwich. Yeah. I've lost interest. You're on your phone. I'm on my phone. And uh, but actually, as Gav talked me through, like there is, there is, there is, it is, it is, there is an interest in it. But um, and you know his story. You know, I, I like the humility line he says with thorough earnestness. Um, and I, always, you know, I, I do, I do think um, he does strike me as one of that pe- one of those people who, who would use the term, you know, the word humbling when he means the exact opposite. <laughs> Uh, we're we're pretty much we're pretty much out of time. We don't have to get too into it. It just struck me next to Ollie Holt uh, writing about the game of shame. Uh, there was an interview with Connor Cody, and so he's part of the England squad and like a really valued member of the England squad because he does seem like such a great person. And Steve Holland, the England coach, gave him player of the tournament at Euro 2020 because even though he barely wasn't playing, he was the best trainer right up to and including the week of the final and he's promoted LGBTQ rights he's promoted vaccines various things but it's interesting he's asked about Qatar and this is the headline he says we know we'll have to speak out in Qatar but we still need to learn about it which sort of like I read the headline and I had my head in my hands I was like, like just Google Qatar though it turns out what he's saying here is later this month now that they've qualified for the World Cup the English team are going to get together at, at George's Park and discuss their position on Qatar and then they're going to speak out in Qatar, which is kind of an interesting prospect. And then so. go to Qatar. Well, I would think so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is maybe where we come in and again... Then again, so will journalists, so, you know... Well, yeah, before, I before all the journalists boycott it... When all the journalists boycott it, we can criticise the teams. But could, you, could you call for it to be boycotted and then still attend it as a journalist? Like, that's... Uh, I don't know. Depends on what you're right. M- Miguel, well, Delaney, yeah. Miguel yeah. Delaney was saying he was talking to people at Amnesty International who very much were of the opinion journalists should go, but should cover the realities. Well, I, yeah, but I, I don't... Yeah, I think that... I, I don't know what journalists would boycotting would boycotting it would do because I, I think they are... And I think no cover, one reads covering the reality, anymore. Yeah, I think they're largely... It's, it's largely irrelevant. Like, it's a television event. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, there's an argument for it to be boycotted. Um, by by teams, by everybody, and again, you come back to this, and this is the reality now. Like, and David Walsh mentions it in his piece about 
about Chelsea, where he talks about the, the, when when Russia won the World Cup in in 2010, the same week that Qatar got th- this World Cup, and everybody knew how much it stunk. Yeah, like, and I <clears throat> I was writing with this last week. I remember that was one of the you know, and it was comical because England were involved, and you've had this build up to that where the reporting in England was Vladimir Putin is not coming uh, to this vote this week. Because the tide, <clears throat> the tide has turned, and uh, he will, he knows that England, you know, because David Cameron and Prince and Prince William uh, and David Beckham are lobbying them. Yeah, he is going to, you know, he, he knows they're going Can't. to lose. And and Walsh makes the point that uh, Rabramovich was there as well, and he arrived on his private jet, and uh, he 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 left in, he left in the company of Blatter. They disappeared into a lift off to a secret meeting. The surprise was that the decision to award Russia the 2018 World Cup finals could be considered a surprise. That was also the week Qatar was awarded. Um, so are we going to retrospectively say, like, would you go to the World Cup in Russia now? No. Would you go to even, like, knowing everything we know about Vladimir Putin and that everything that has come out, not just about Ukraine, but all the stuff we, we looked away from over the past, you know, Russia was four years after the annexation of Crimea. Yeah. Um, we looked away. So, are we going to come back? In, are we going to be sitting here next year after the World Cup, or in two years' time, and say, actually, maybe we should have boycotted Qatar? That's precisely what's going to happen. Yeah. 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 No, it is. Yeah. It's very grim. But like, I mean, even for Cody, I, I like I have sympathy because he's been let down by all the stakeholders in the game at every level. Well, all the way up for to Cody. The top. It's like there is, and then the, this comes back again. We, this is Cody isn't the person who really needs to deal with this no. now at the same time Eddie Howe is going to be asked about Newcastle again this week like you know after the game today and I'd say he is the person like he can't say I'm here to talk about football he didn't he, he is not he's not a legacy issue for Newcastle he, he took the job aware of who his owners were and if he's going to be asked about you know how many, how many people were executed in Saudi Arabia yesterday 82, 82. Yeah. he's going to be asked about that today and he he better have a good answer because he's taking their money, mm. and you know this is the thing that's going to have to change. The people actually realize when I when I do the when I take these jobs when I work with these people, I'm going to have to answer for for all of these things that are way beyond my pay grade, uh, and that and that's the problem. But I think you know the idea of a boycott. I at some point somebody's going to have to say these things matter because you look. Putin invaded Ukraine after the Winter Olympics ended. That was deliberate. That wasn't a coincidence. He guaranteed China that he wouldn't invade while the Winter Olympics were taking place. Why? Like, if sport matter, if sport doesn't matter, that wouldn't matter, but yeah. it does matter. So these things are coming down the line, and you, you retrospectively saying we should have done something is pointless. Dion Fanning of The Currency, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming in. And Gavin Cooney of The 42 was with us as well. We're back next week for Sunday Pay Per View.